Amen. Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn once again to the book of Philippians as we continue our study through Philippians. We find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 14 through 18. Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Now, I've only been here a few months and we're still getting to know each other, so I think this is a good moment for me to tell you a little something about my preaching It has been my habit throughout my ministry to not stop and preach special messages on special days like Mother's Day and Father's Day and Fourth of July, and there's many reasons for that. If I'm going through a book of the Bible, I like to just continue uh, to go, but one of the kind of more practical reasons is if you stay at a church long enough, you just kind of run out of Mother's Day sermons. Brother Bill, you have to know that that's true. You just come to a point where you're really grasping for a Mother's Day sermon or a Father's Day sermon, and I, I've just kind of thought, well, I'll just trust the Lord that as we're going through a book, we'll be at the right place at the right time. And I, and I can say, this normally happens. My first Mother's Day as a senior pastor, I was going through the book of First Kings, and I found myself on Mother's Day at First Kings chapter 18, a wonderful text of Scripture, where Elijah calls down fire from heaven and then slaughters 450 prophets of Baal. Not your classic Mother's Day sermon. Although, as I was preaching that, I did have some memories come back of my mother saying things like, boy, you better clean up your room or the spirit of Elijah is about to come over me. Things like that, I, I do remember. But it, it was a bit hard to, to make a connection between uh, slaughtering 450 prophets of Baal and Mother's Day. But this morning, by God's grace, we, we come to something uh, much more pertinent on Mother's Day. As, as a matter of fact, and this is all just by God's providence, I, I think if I were to take a survey of mothers and say, okay, no one else is going to know this, but, but give me one verse you would like for me to preach on Mother's Day so that everyone you brought with you could hear it. They might just pick Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, which says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do I have an amen from the mothers? Amen. There we go. And that is exactly where I find ourselves by God's grace this morning. Now, I do want to give a bit of a warning on this text. Because in in my experience of studying this exact portion of Scripture, This is one of those verses that every time I read it, I immediately think of all kinds of people I know who need to hear it. After all, I have five kids and pastor a church. I hear a lot of grumbling and disputing. But yet, I have also found in my experience that every time I look at this text and ask the Lord to use it in my life, I find that what ends up happening is that I am more convicted of my own personal struggle than it is the struggle of others. The truth is, is that all of us are good at identifying other people's sins. It is actually one of the spiritual gifts that we all have together. We are very good at pointing out other sins. But yet I really do believe that when it comes to this text, that if we look at it humbly, we will not see the speck of sawdust in another person's eye, but we might see the log cabin in our own. So let's look at it together in Philippians 2. As I read, if you're there at Philippians 2, 14, say amen. Amen. Here it is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out that I did not run in vain, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, let me remind you of exactly where this comes in the flow of Philippians. The very central theme of Philippians is found in 127, where Paul is pleading with the church to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the reason that he's making that plea is because the man from the church in Philippi that came to visit Paul, Epaphroditus, and brought news about how the church was doing, gave him the report that the church was not getting along. And so everything that is written in Philippians is written from the Apostle Paul who loves them and longs for them to be faithful in the ministry of the gospel, together, unified, striving side by side, but yet knowing that there is contention within the church, is writing, pleading with them to be together. Now, in chapter 2, he tells us the way that that happens. The only way that we will be a united church is that every, if every individual embraces the selfless humility of Christ. Every single person looking not for their own interest, but looking out for the interest of others, consistently dying to self and embracing the life of Jesus. He then, as we saw last week, calls you to personally work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We said last week you are called to apply incredible effort, strenuous effort, to work out what God has already worked in. So he's calling you to this practical application of the truth. God has done something good in you. Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then, immediately after that, he chooses this one issue as an area to address. Now he does choose it because he knows there's complaining and disputing in the church. But he does it for more reasons than that. Paul addresses this specific issue because he knows that there are very few things that will undermine the work of God in the church and the work of God in your own life more than grumbling and disputing. I think this has become such a, a part of our lives that we often fail to realize how serious it actually is. Paul is is fully aware, because he's seen it in other churches, that if they continue down this path of grumbling and continue down this path of complaining, it will end in the destruction of the church. It will have dramatic effects upon every individual in the church. So Paul is saying to us, listen, this is not simply a bad habit. This is a sin that must be killed. He is pleading with us to wage war on the sin of complaining because of simply how destructive it can be. Now look at the two words he uses. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now these are distinct words, but they really kind of come back to the same idea. But the word grumbling there is, is really a, a heart that is never satisfied. There's just always something that's not right. There's always something that is not the way that it should be. It's someone who can always find something wrong with every situation and every person. No matter how good the situation is, there's always this ability to find something wrong. It is a discontent heart. 
That word grumbling is actually an onomatopoeia, meaning it's, it's one of those words that sounds like what it really is, grumbling. You just can't say that joyfully. Grumbling. Grumbling just sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? Grumble. I could say it like 10 times and you would get it. That's going to be odd. But grumbling, it just, it sounds like this kind of Eeyore, kind of this just nothing's right and, and I'm always finding something wrong with everything. And whether it is always verbally expressed or just internal, he's addressing a grumbling heart. But he's also talking about disputing here, meaning quarreling or debating This is kind of someone who always has to assert themselves into every situation and always has to give their opinion and always has to be right, that they have to win the argument, that they have to allow their voice to be heard. They're critical of almost every situation. And the truth is, is that even though these are separate and distinct sins, what I would say is they they both go back to a spirit of simply complaining, And where they come from is from a heart of inner discontent. It all flows from a heart of inner discontent, a heart that is self-centered, that is not satisfied with God and the things that God's provided. And out of that inner discontent, the sense that I'm not right and my situations aren't right and nothing is the way it should be, out of that flows grumbling and disputing. It is a life of complaining. And it is extremely serious to God. Now, the way this text works shows us the way in which we deal with the sin. Because there are three commands in these verses. It starts and ends with commands. The first command is in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is a command. Stop grumbling and disputing. Stop complaining. The second and third commands are in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. Two commands. So it starts by saying, stop complaining. And it ends with start being glad and rejoicing. And in between those commands are really the reasons why it's so important. And the reasons are all related to the work of the gospel in your life and the work of the gospel through the life of the church. So so here's what I would say is the point of Philippians 2, 14 through 18. For the sake of the gospel, replace your complaining with rejoicing. If you're taking notes, write that down. For the sake of the gospel, this is not just about you. It's about the gospel in your life and the gospel through the church. For the sake of the gospel, replace your complaining with rejoicing. And the reason I say it that way is because we will see at the end, this is a choice you make. For the sake of the gospel, replace your complaining with rejoicing. So this morning, understanding the serious of these things, I want us to look at a couple of parts of this. I want us to see why you need to wage war on your complaining. And then very quickly at the end, I'm going to give you a a few antidotes to complaining. Some things that if you practice will really remove the inner discontent and complaining from your heart. But let me give you three reasons why you need to wage war on complaining to help you see the seriousness of this. I encourage you to write these three things down. The first one is this. You need to wage war on complaining because complaining hinders your gospel progress. Get that down. 
complaining hinders your gospel progress. It hinders the work that God wants to do in your life. Now Paul is clearly, as he's writing this, remembering the story of the people of God as they're trying to get to the promised land. I know that because he uses the exact same word for grumbling that is used 21 times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. He brings this word back up to stir up in our remembrance what happened with the people of God. Now you know the story. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were under forced labor. It was getting worse and worse and worse. They had no freedom. They had no ability to go and worship. It was a horrible situation. And so they begin to plead with the Lord to deliver them. God, would you please deliver us from slavery? Would you please deliver us from captivity? Would you please give us freedom? The Bible says that God heard their prayer. He sent Moses as a mediator on behalf of the Lord to show Pharaoh the superior power of the Lord, to make the name of the Lord famous, and to miraculously deliver the people of Israel. And so you know what happened. After all of the plagues, uh, they were delivered out of Egypt. They were taken across the Red Sea in this miraculous moment where the Red Sea parted. Pharaoh's army came in after them. The waters then closed, and so all of Pharaoh's army was destroyed, and the people got to the other side. Now, God's intent was not just to bring them to the other side, but to bring them into the promised land. He promised them that I will not simply save you from slavery. I will give you a better land. You will have to journey there, but I will take you to the better land. Now, Exodus 15 shows what happens the moment they get to the other side of the Red Sea. Almost the entire chapter is a prayer and a praise of Moses. He is just praising the Lord in front of all of the people for the miraculous work of God and God's goodness and grace and kindness and power and glory. And then Miriam, Aaron's sister, gets the tambourine and the ladies. I've always wanted to start a Miriam ministry in the church, you know, tambourine and dancing. And Miriam, don't be worried, we're probably not going to do that. So Miriam comes out with dancing and tambourines and they're rejoicing and celebrating all the good works that God is doing. And there's just massive celebration because God just saved them. And in the next passage, right as Miriam is dancing and the women are using their tambourines and everyone is rejoicing, they immediately begin begin to grumble because the water didn't taste just right. The water was just a little bit more bitter than it was in Egypt. Now you think this might have just been a one and done, right? They just grumbled and all of a sudden they realized how dumb that was to grumble in this context and they were done with it. But the reality is from that moment all the way through, they grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble. Nothing is right. It is as if there is nothing God can do to make them happy. The food is not right. The water is not right. The place is not right. There is nothing God can do to make this happy. They grumble the entire time until they get to Numbers 14 in which God said, I have had enough because of your grumbling. This entire generation will not inherit the promised land. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you look at this story and you think, You people are such idiots. (laughs) Do you not remember how bad it was in Egypt? And halfway through, they're begging to go back to Egypt because the water doesn't taste right and they're tired of the manna, which they got because they grumbled about something else. And they wanted meat and God gave them meat till it came out of their nose and they grumbled about something else. And you just say, people, you you could have had the promised land. Why are you continuing to complain about everything? And then all of a sudden, 
sudden, when we can't believe the way they're acting, in a moment of self-awareness, we realize we're exactly the same. We're exactly the same. That God in his miraculous grace has delivered us from enslavement to our lust and our sin and Satan. We were spiritually dead, disobedient, and doomed. We were doomed to a life separated from God, an eternity in hell. But God in his grace sent his son Jesus Christ as a mediator to take us to the other side of the sea of sin and not only deliver us and save us by the death of his son, but promise that if we will hold on in this journey, he will take us to the promised land. And yet we complain the whole way. It's as if we forget where we came from, which is a terrible situation. And it's as if we forget where we're going, which is a wonderful situation in the promised land. And we have come from slavery. We are headed to eternal bliss with God the Father. But it's the journey that's the problem. The water never tastes quite right. The food's not quite right. And the reason this is such a serious issue to the Lord is because it is rooted in a self-centered pride. Our grumbling is not against someone, it is against God. It is a constant statement to the Lord that we don't believe you know what you're doing. That we don't believe that you're sovereignly controlling all of these things. Every time my heart is complaining, I'm simply saying to the Lord, Lord, you have not done enough. You are not doing what you said you were going to do. It is a lack of faith and in Numbers chapter 14, the Lord refers to it as faithless, rebellious, and wicked. It is no small issue. The truth is, you cannot make spiritual progress with a complaining heart. Say, oh, why is this so serious? Because you can't make spiritual progress with a complaining heart. This is why he says, and look back at verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Meaning this, grumbling and complaining does not go with holiness. There's this vision of holiness. Do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you can be blameless and innocent children of God so you can walk in holiness. But you cannot make progress in holiness with a complaining heart. So God is saying, for the sake of the gospel in your life, for the good work that God wants to do and the progress he wants you to make, you have to wage war on complaining because in the same way that the Lord would not allow the people of Israel to continue to make progress with a complaining heart, he also will not allow us to make progress in holiness if our heart is constantly complaining. Complaining hinders your gospel progress. But the second one is this. Complaining also destroys your gospel witness. It hinders your gospel progress. Write this down. Complaining destroys your gospel witness. That's the second reason why you have to wage war in complaining. It destroys your gospel witness. The context of this statement really matters. It's right in the context of Paul saying, listen, strive together for the sake of the gospel. Be together for the gospel. You're a church. You exist to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be about that. And then he comes back and says, but let me just make it clear. You can't be about that with a complaining heart. A complaining people cannot strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And there's many reasons for that. 
I mean, let's just talk practically. If you have a complaining heart, and a church has a complaining heart, you'll never be striving for the gospel because you're simply too self-consumed to care. A complaining heart is so consumed with what's going wrong in their own life that they don't care about what's going wrong in someone else's life. A complaining heart doesn't care about the loss. They're too consumed with themselves. So the reason we often are oblivious to the needs of others around us We don't even see them. We don't acknowledge them. We don't think about the the state of the lost and the eternal destiny of the lost is because, frankly, we're too consumed with ourselves and we're thinking about all the things that aren't going right in our lives. This is why Romans 12, 15, as I quoted a minute ago, matters. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Enter into where they are, not where you are. But even more than that, it destroys our gospel witness because it's just a horrible testimony to a watching world. I mean, how can you share the gospel with someone whose experience with you is that you constantly complain? I I don't know. I mean, maybe you know some people different than I know people, but I've never met a person in my 43 years that just thought to themselves, "You, you know what I'm missing? There's a void in my life. I wish I had some more complaining friends. I just I wish I could add a couple more people in my life that just were never happy. And they were always complaining. Or you know what? I, oh, oh, you know what would be better? Oh my word. What if I could have like a gathering of complainers? Like a like a church. And we all gather together and we grumble and we dispute. That's what I need. Well, can I invite you to Prince Heaven? No! No one's looking for that. No one wants that. And praise God, that that is not the story of this church. I'm just saying, think about what that does to your gospel witness. If you are known as a person that does not have a content heart, why would they believe the gospel you preach of a God that satisfies your needs? A God that has delivered you from slavery and taken you to the promised land. And this is why Paul gives this word picture. Look, he says, We're living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, amen? We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So so what do we do living in a crooked and twisted generation? Here it is. Shine as lights in the world. Shine as lights. That, That there is to be something distinctive about our life, conspicuous about us, that it is obvious that we are followers of Jesus Christ. It's that vision of Jesus that really comes from the book of Daniel, but in Matthew 5, 16, where Jesus says that we are to be a city on a hill, that our light should radiate in such a way that all people see it and glorify God the Father who is in heaven. Let me just tell you something. Complaining and grumbling is the, is the voice of the age in which we live. This is the language of the age, cynicism and discontent and bitterness and this sensitivity and sense of injustice. Isn't this the language of our age? Everyone is cynical. Everyone questions everything. Everyone is discontent and bitter and there's always this sense of injustice that I haven't been done right and my needs are not being met. And could it be that in the midst of this moment in history that we live in, the greatest testimony that we could ever have is the testimony, listen, of simply a satisfied heart. You, you want to talk about shining 
in the midst of this crooked and twisted age, what if you just lived with a satisfied heart? I'm good. I'm good. Remember the song we just sang? I got Jesus. How could I want more? We sing that and we sing it loud. The truth is we got Jesus and for some reason we want so much more. I mean, for many of us, our minds are just a constant list of the next thing we want. And we get that and it's not right, so we get something else. And the reason that happens is because the Lord is saying, listen, none of those things are going to satisfy you. I'm going to satisfy you and you have me, so just go all in with me. What if the greatest testimony was simply the testimony of a people who are satisfied with what God has done in our lives? And that's why he says, look at verse 16. Shine as lights and then holding fast to the word of life. What is the word of life? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the gospel, which by the way is the way we remember who we are and where we've been and where we're going. We're constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel so that we'll have a satisfied heart. And then Paul does a little bit of self-remembering here. He says, so that in the day of Christ, when Christ returns or I meet the Lord, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's remembering Moses. And what he's saying is this. It is possible, Paul says, for me to have given myself to you and yet all of my work to be in vain. Why? Because you just keep complaining. And you're undermining the work of God. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. What he's saying is this. Listen, I poured myself out for you. Like Christ, it's the same idea. Christ emptied himself the beginning of chapter two, I emptied myself, Paul says. I, I poured myself out for you. And then you sacrificed for me. You gave a sacrificial offering of your faith to me. So I made a sacrifice and you made a sacrifice. Let's don't allow this sacrifice to be in vain for one simple reason, because you can't get control of your complaining heart. He says, listen, this is going to not only undermine the work of the gospel in our lives, this is going to destroy our gospel witness. So Paul says, can we not simply rejoice together in the good things God is doing so a watching world will notice and will want the satisfied heart that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ? Complaining hinders the work of the gospel in your life. Complaining destroys your gospel witness. Let me give you the third and final one. And maybe most significant, complaining steals your gospel joy. Complaining, complaining hinders your gospel progress, that's number one. Complaining destroys your gospel witness, that's number two. Number three is complaining steals your gospel joy. You know, Philippians is always known as the book of joy. And there's reason for that, because there's a lot of references to joy but it's always important for us to remember that Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. And there is not one moment that you can find in the book of Philippians where Paul is complaining about his current circumstances. And here's the reason why. is because Paul is concerned with their joy. He says in Philippians 1.25, I believe I will remain with you for your joy and progress in the faith. He says at the end of chapter 2, verse 18, I want you to be glad and rejoice. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, rejoice in the Lord. He says it in chapter 4, verse 4, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. So here's what Paul knows. If I'm writing, just complaining about all the things that are going on in my life, how am I to call you into joy? So Paul knows that, that he must be experiencing this joy in, other, in order for others to be experiencing this joy. And you know, I... Every time I read Philippians, I think about my own self, and I know that 
if I were in Paul's position, I wouldn't want to do a lot of complaining, but I'd want to add just enough so you'd feel sorry for me. I, I love when people feel sorry for me. I'm just telling you. And I think what Paul, what I would do if I was Paul is I would say, man, I'm doing great. God is good. Now, I mean, I'll be honest, it's hard. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? You do this too. You know what I'm saying. Just add a little bit so they know like, man, God's good. I'm doing great. I mean, it's, you know. But Paul never, not even like anything, nothing. He's not trying to get any sympathy. He's just simply saying, listen, God is good and I, I know whose I am. And worst case scenario, I die. And that's awesome because for me to live is Christ and die is gain. And, and because of Paul's incredible testimony of joy and suffering, he can then call the joy out of them. But Paul knows this, you cannot complain and have joy. You can't. They do not go together. Your complaining heart steals your joy. That God has joy available for you that comes from the awareness of who you are in Christ. But every time you complain, you're robbing yourself of joy. And may I just say this, you're not only robbing yourself of your joy, you're robbing others of their joy. No one wants to be around a complaining person. I mean, complaining people just kind of suck the life out of you. Now, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get real here for just a minute. So um, I was thinking about this this morning. I, I didn't really plan on sharing this, but um, after Andrea had gone through a year of, of cancer treatment and I, I just found myself in a really bad place. I was tired and it had been a, a hard year or so, but I just, I got in a really dark place emotionally and spiritually, frankly. I mean, so much so that the church came and said, you gotta take a break because we can just see it. And what ended up happening, it was this strange cycle of, of just frustration with myself and my lack of not being who I wanted to be, just all this stuff going on. And it kind of ended up in this cycle of self-doubt and self-hatred and frustration, all of this. And because it was in my heart, I couldn't keep it in because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, there was one day in which uh, my incredible wife um, just didn't want to hear it anymore. I'll just say it that way and... She, I asked her permission to share this, and she said, she said to me, Josh, I don't, I don't know if you realize what you're doing, but every day you come home from work, and all you do is say five negative things that are going on. Like something in the house, or something with the kids, or something with the family. You're just, it just, five negative things. And here's the thing. Honestly, I wasn't doing this as a statement against her. I mean that, and what it was is it was flowing out of my frustration with myself. So I would, I would say, oh my word, this house, and like there's things that I needed to do, but here's what was happening. Every single thing that I said was being perceived as against her. And I broke. Like, I didn't realize I was doing that, and what I realized is this issue that I was having in my own heart was not just affecting me, it was sucking the joy out of my wife and my children. That's what a heart that is not satisfied in Christ always does. It's just critical, and it's just complaining, and it's never happy. And it's not just taking your joy. It's taking the joy of those around you. So Paul then says this in verse 18. He says, in the same way that I'm glad and rejoice, likewise, and here's the last two commands, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It is the opposite 
of 14. Verse 14 is complaining. What is the opposite of complaining? Gladness, which really gladness is a sense of contentment. I'm good with what's going on. I'm glad in this situation and rejoicing. Respond with gladness and rejoicing. Paul is calling us to replace our complaining with rejoicing, which let me just say this. This means it is a choice you make. You make the choice whether you're going to complain or be glad or grumble. This is not about your circumstances. And I know that because it's not about Paul's circumstances. And your circumstances are not as bad as Paul's. So if Paul can do this, we have to know that this is not circumstantial. There is the ability to choose gladness and joy over complaining if we want to by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Listen to me. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to be like that. You don't have to be known as someone like this. You don't have to rob yourself of this joy and your family of this joy. You don't have to be like this. You can choose to be glad and rejoice by reminding yourself of who you are in Christ Jesus. So let me do this as practical application. I'm going to give you three words that are practices that kill complaining. Don't get nervous. I'm going to give these to you very quickly. But I have to give, I'm going to give you practical. Here's three practices. Let's say it this way. Three practices that will help you wage war on complaining. If, if you feel this morning convicted, Lord, I don't want to be like this. I, I, want, I want to practice this. Now remember, we work out our salvation. This is a call for strenuous effort. And I'm going to tell you three practices that you put effort into because these things I'm about to give you cannot be present at the same time a complaining heart is present. These wage war on complaining. The first one is this, gratitude. Write it down, gratitude. It is, listen, it is looking at where you were and looking at where you're going and thanking God that you're not there and you're headed there. Is life hard? It is so hard. Life at times is unrelenting. It is hard. We should be, this is, this is clear. All of scripture tells us life is hard, but it's not as hard as it could be if we were still enslaved and we're going to the promised land church. This is why I keep telling you that the gospel is not just to save you. The gospel is to sustain you. The gospel is what reminds you of who you were and where you're going. So you're preaching the gospel to yourself and reminding you, thank God that I have no longer been enslaved and I am headed to the promised land. Gratitude. A habit of thanking the Lord constantly for the good things that are in your life. Seeing the good things and not the negative things. When the negative things come, you practice. Right now, I'm going to give things. Gratitude. The second one is praise. Praise. Praise and complaining don't go together. Paul's letter from prison contained no complaining, but complained ton, contained tons of praise and rejoicing. What I'm, what I'm calling you to is active, conscious, singing and praying and rejoicing in the Lord. Read Ephesians 1 this week. Paul writing from another prison and just saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in him before the foundation. I mean, he just goes on and just, and I think 114 words in one sentence just overflows with praise 
because there's all these things in his life that prison can't take away, that his circumstances can't take away. So he chooses to give thanks and he chooses to pray and to praise. So gratitude and praise. The third one is this, humility. Gratitude, praise, and humility. Complaining flows from a heart that thinks you deserve more than you've gotten. And let me just say this. We don't deserve more than we've received. We've received more than we deserve. And so in humility, I recognize who I am and that everything I have has been received. And I go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, and I say I'm going to look out to the, own, the interest of others and not my own interest. I'm going to stop being self-consumed. And the way I'm going to fight being self-consumed is I'm going to start getting involved in the lives and the problems of others. So listen, these are three practices that you have to do. Remember last week, you don't just let go and let God. You actively choose, I'm going to give thanks, I'm going to praise, and I'm going to walk in humility. Now, the reason this is so important is because God, I believe, is in the business of exposing us. And one of the things he does is if he shows you that you have a problem with complaining, then it's really exposing something deeper. It's exposing that your eyes are not where they should be. And I think the primary call of this message, and it goes back to the gratitude and the praise and the humility, is this is a call to get your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Focused on Christ, who is so good and so kind and so gracious, who has given his life for you so that you might be saved from sin. That you are headed in eternity to the promised land, not because of your own goodness or effort, because he is carrying you on his back. This is a call to look to Jesus every morning, every afternoon, every evening, constantly getting your eyes focused on Christ. And as you do, may the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes on Christ so that your complaining might turn to rejoicing and not hinder your gospel progress, your gospel witness or the gospel joy that is a birthright that you have. So somehow by God's grace, I pray that that would be your life and our testimony as a church. Let's bow our heads and